A few weeks ago, I was here at our youth service, and one of our members brought one of his friends who happened to be a Muslim. And he was very curious in the Christian faith, and he had a lot of great questions, and we spent a good maybe hour talking to him, and it was a great conversation. But in the midst of that conversation, uh, you know, he mentioned Jesus is a great prophet. Jesus was a great man, uh, and God speaks to us in the Bible, in the Torah, and in the Quran. And so I said, so, so if we're so closely related, are we as Christians, are we going to be up there in heaven with you? And to which he replied saying, well, you take a created being and you elevate him to the status of God, so that is idolatry, so no, you won't be in heaven with us. And I just want to ask this question. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before. Maybe you've had a conversation with a Muslim before. But are we taking a created being, Jesus Christ, and have we elevated him to the, the status of God wrongfully? And are we guilty of idolatry? And is our eternal destiny at stake in jeopardy? And I'm going to obviously argue that that's not the case. But, and if we study the Gospel of John as we've been going through it, there, you will find few books in the Bible that have so much evidence, not just for the deity, or I'm going to use that word often today, it means godness, the God, divine nature, God-like, God nature of Jesus, not just the deity of Christ, but also evidence for the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Especially in chapters, what we're going to be going through, 14 through 17, it's just, it's, it's got the Trinity woven through it. So open your Bibles, please, to John 14, and we'll read the first 11 verses. And while you're opening there, I'll tell you the context of John 14. What's happening there is Jesus is having the Last Supper with his disciples. He just told them that one of them will betray him. Jesus is preparing to die. The disciples still don't, can't quite understand what's going on. And so Jesus speaks to them, John 14. Let's read together, starting with verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is I want to take this Sunday to really just unpack this this concept of the Trinity and, and also the identity of Jesus, especially as found in the Gospel of John. So what we just read... We, we, you know, John records Jesus saying things that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Not, notice, not a way, not one, one of the many ways. No, Jesus is the only way, exclusive way to the Father. Jesus also says that if you know him, then you also know the Father. And whoever has seen Jesus, if you've seen Jesus, then you've seen the Father. And that Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus. And lastly, Jesus says, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who lives in me does his work. In fact, in the Gospel of John, there are over a hundred mentions of the word Father, and most of them are in reference to God the Father. So this, this, this concept of the Father and the Son and their relationship and the Spirit are, are this, it's this constant topic in the Gospel of John. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the definition of the Trinity. It's very simple. We've got it up there on the screen. The Trinity is one God in three persons. One God in three persons. Now, first of all, I, I want to tell you this right away. The word Trinity itself never shows up in the Bible. I love asking people that are getting baptized like this question because everyone's like wondering, you know, sometimes someone will say three times. How many, does it maybe it shows up three times in the Bible? No, it never shows up in the Bible. And maybe some of, the, some of you are sitting here and you're shocked. You're like, well, why do we believe it if it's not in the Bible? Well, just because the explicit word never shows up in the Bible doesn't mean that the idea is not in the Bible, right? I can explain an idea to you without using the one word which would encompass all of that. So, and what we're going to do today is kind of a crash course of the Trinity to show you that it really is here in the Bible. And this really is not just what some people twisted the words of Jesus and started teaching this idea of Trinity. No, 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 no. The Bible clearly teaches the concept of the Trinity. Now, you could reject that if you want, but you can't say that some people have twisted the words of Scripture to and created this idea of the Trinity. No, the Bible is Trinitarian through and through, as we will see. Now, one way to define the Trinity or, or kind of explain it is there's, you, you could do it in five steps, you could do it in three. We're going to do it in three today. But first of all, there is only one God. Second of all, each person is fully God. And lastly, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they are distinct, meaning you can, dis you can distinguish between them, and it is not one the same and, you know, just, just one God wearing different masks. 
That is not what the Trinity is, okay? So let's, look, let's go to the next slide. There is one God. Let's look at this, the oneness. I'm going to give you just passages. So if you want to write these down for yourself, Isaiah 45, verse 21. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. This is our God speaking. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Our God is one. Deuteronomy 4.35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. But it's not just the Old Testament that tells us that. The New Testament affirms this truth as well. Galatians 3.20, God is one. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God. And the last passage on this concept is in Matthew 28. Remember, church, when Jesus is about to ascend and he's speaking to his disciples and and he gives the Great Commission. And remember, in the Great Commission, he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into, in, in what? Do you remember? What does it say? Shout it out. In the what? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Now, if you're not paying attention, you, won't, you wouldn't have caught this. But notice, it doesn't say baptizing them into the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No, in the name. And if you look at the Greek, it's actually singular. In one name. The name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. Actually, this passage is very Trinitarian because we see all three of them, and yet they all have one name. There is one God. Both the Old and the New Testaments agree and clearly teach and uphold that there is one God. Now, each one is fully God. Let's start with the Father. I don't think, I don't think we need to do a lot of work to show this. It's all over the Bible. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, right? He's the father who has a son. He sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The second one, Jesus, more people will dispute this. John, again, John, the very couple of, first couple of verses of John. Just whenever you want to establish the deity of Christ, just go to the first chapter of John, the first couple of verses. In the beginning was the what, church? The Word. And the Word was with God. So he's distinct, but he's with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 2, 9, in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Philippians 2, 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. Jesus is God. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And skipping to a couple of verses, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, for in him all the fullness of God 
was pleased to dwell. Think about this. God is the only infinite being, right? This entire universe to him is just a tiny little infinitesimally small speck of dust. This entire universe with all of its trillions of galaxies and all the trillions of stars in each of those galaxies, it is infinitesimally small. In fact, God is so infinite, God is so immense that he has no spatial limits. And yet, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not a little part of God, but the fullness of the infinitude of God lives. Only the infinite God can contain the infinite God. Amen, church? That is our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we worship. The Spirit the Spirit is also God, and we see that. So in, in the book of Acts, when the, the, the church just starts in the city of Jerusalem, uh, and God starts to work in people's hearts, and people start selling their property, they start selling all their possessions, and what they start doing is they start giving to the church. It's almost like startup money, right? God is using that money because he has a, he has a global vision for the church, and it's about to explode. It's on the cusp of exploding to the whole world. Now, people weren't forced to do that. They didn't have to, but a lot of people chose to because God moved them. And there was a couple. Their name was Ananias and Sapphira. And they sold their property for one amount, but they said they sold it for this amount. And they said, oh, yeah, look, we're giving you all the money, but they're actually keeping back some, which they didn't have to lie. Like, they could have just said, hey, we're giving you half, Right. But they chose, they agreed to lie, and when they came to Peter, when the husband came to Peter, this is what Peter tells him. He says, Ananias, Acts 5.3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart you have not lied to man, but to God. He's saying you lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, we see the Holy Spirit and God, they're, they're constantly used interchangeably. Do you not know that you are God's temple, right? God's temple, the temple is where God lives, right? And that God's Spirit dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 2.10, for these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Again, it's the same idea of the infinitude of God dwelling fully in Jesus God is infinite. Again, God is infinite. We will never, even in heaven, be able to search the infinite depths of God. We're going to be going forever and ever and ever. And after 10 trillion billion years, we will be no closer to finding the bottom and the edges of God than when we first began. But the Spirit of God searches all the depths of God. 
So the Spirit of God is God because only the infinite God can comprehend his own infinitude. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, there's, people try to use a lot of different analogies to, to help the Trinity make sense to us, right? Because it's difficult. It's difficult to comprehend with our minds. But usually those analogies are better at describing a heresy about the Trinity than the Trinity itself. So if we can go to the next slide. God is not like a pie, right? Uh, it's not like, you know, there's this one big pie and one-third of it is the Father, one-third is the Spirit, one-third is the Son. No, that's not, this is, this is a heresy. No, each of them are fully, completely God and yet there is only one God. Let's go to the next slide. The Trinity is not like different states of matter, right? You know, water. It can be a solid, a liquid, a gas. Like before, God was, you know, the solid, the Father, you know, in the Old Testament. And then he became a liquid, and he came down to earth. And then after he uh, was done with his work, he turned into a gas, the Holy Spirit. And here he is, always present with us. Again, this is better at describing a heresy called modalism, like where God takes on different modes. Or, you know, God's sitting up there and he's, he's putting on different masks when he's interacting. Before, I'm wearing the mask of the Father, the mask of the Son, and then the mask of the Spirit. That's a heresy. That's, God is not taking on different masks or different modes. No, there is one being, three persons. So let's recap. We, we talk about God is one. Each person is God. And lastly, this is very important, if we can go to the next slide, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they are all distinct. John 20, 17, after Jesus was raised from the dead, Mary comes to him and Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Here we clearly see Jesus is saying, I will soon turn into the Father, or I will soon turn into the Spirit. No, no, no. He's saying, I will ascend to the Father. There is this distinction between Jesus and the Father. John 17, which we're going to be preaching on soon, it's one big, long prayer where Jesus is praying to the Father, John 17 is not, a, is not a monologue of Jesus talking to himself or pretending to be praying, but actually he's talking to himself. No, it is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, speaking to the Father who is the first person of the Trinity. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his Son, not became and looked like a son and came into this world. No, he sent his Son John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. The Father is sending the Spirit. John 16, 7, Jesus, we also read, Jesus also sends the Spirit to us. Notice these are all passages from John, by the way, that I just read. But there's more. Mark Remember Mark chapter 1, when Jesus was baptized? Remember what happened when Jesus came out of the water? He comes out of the water, and there's a voice from heaven, the Father speaking, Behold, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descending in the form of what? A dove, right? And so we see here, that's a very Trinitarian passage. The Son, we've got the Father speaking, and we've got the Holy Spirit descending from the Father upon the Son, 
or 2 Corinthians 3, 13, 14. This is not just a, a, a cool way for us to finish prayers at the end of our church service. No, this is a very, very awesome and Trinitarian passage. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All three, all three persons are present here in this moment, in this prayer, in this request to God. It's not just different masks. So I want to show you this right here. This is a good, this is not like a diagram, but this is a good way of easily kind of explaining what the Trinity means. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, but the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Now, I, I do want to say, we can't fully wrap our minds around the Trinity. We can't. And anyone who claims to be able to do that, they're probably misunderstanding the Trinity. Because I don't think that our mind is capable of com comprehending the multidimensional nature of God. We're three-dimensional creatures, and we're, just, we're living in three-dimensional space, and obviously our understanding is limited. That doesn't mean it's not true, though, right? If the Bible is constantly teaching this, then it must be true. And here's another thing I want to add. Let's say we were to get together, and we decide that we want to start a religion, right? Because there's good money in religion, right? We could make a lot of money. Now, if we were to create a religion, like let's say we sat down, we got the whiteboard, okay, what are we going to have in this religion, right? Well, we got to have this heaven, this really nice place to go, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. Everyone's going to love that, right? We're, we're going to heal people. Oh, yeah, that's great, right? Okay, well, how's God going to look? Would, would we, if we were to create a religion, God forbid, uh, would we make the idea of God as like very confusing to people or very simple to understand and to follow? What would you do, church? Simple, right? You want to make it as simple as easy, right? To drink down like water, right? Because the first person you're going to come to, hey, I've got this new religion like God told me. Okay, tell me about this God. Well, it's one God, okay. Three, per well, hold on, can you explain that part? And then like that's it. Your, your religion wouldn't spread after that, right? It wouldn't spread. It wouldn't work. Because people are just like, okay, you're weird, right? But the fact that Christianity went from being, you know, 12-person, 500-person little gathering to the number one religion in the world, which did not spread itself by the sword, by the way. It, again, not every hard-to-believe idea is automatically true, but this is something to consider that it spread despite the fact that our human understanding is so limited that we can't fully comprehend the Trinity. And how many millions of people went and laid down their lives for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the Trinity, not even fully being able to grasp it with their mind. If that is not the work of God and the Spirit in the hearts of people, I don't know what that is. And Christianity has the number one amount of martyrs by a mile. You can look it up yourself. And I'm not talking about people that went and blew themselves up for their faith, but those who laid their life down out of love for people and love for the Lord and said, no, I will not deny him whom my soul loves. 
So, uh, contrary to what Muslims say, we are not turning Jesus into God. We are just acknowledging who he really, really is. Muslims will try to say that Jesus is just a great prophet, but even a tiny amount of honest reading in the New Testament will show that he is not just a prophet. In fact, we see in the New Testament, according to the words of Jesus himself, Jesus is the one who sends out prophets. Look at this, Matthew 23, verse 34. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. In the Old Testament, who sent prophets? Do you remember, church? Was it kings? Who was it? You can shout it out. God, the Lord, right? Thus says the Lord. It was only Yahweh who would send the prophets. And here Jesus is saying, I'm the one sending the prophets. Open your Bibles. This is the last part before I go to the last part of my message in John 14. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. This is another really, really good passage about the nature of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. So just remember, John 1, Hebrews 1. And we're going we're gonna to just go through the first couple of verses together. Hebrews 1, verse 1. The author writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So he's creating this Compare and contrast immediately, right? He says, long ago and many times, in many ways, he spoke by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke by the Son. Meaning, and when he says last days, he's saying this is God's final revelation. It's not going to be like Jesus and then another one, Muhammad, and then Joseph Smith, and then another one. and another. No, no, no. These are the last days. This is the last and full disclosure of God because he is God. And he has spoken by his son. Verse 2, whom he appointed, that's Jesus, to be the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Again, he's the heir of all things. He's, he owns all things. This is not just a prophet. This is not just some special dude. It says through whom he created the world. If the other passages weren't clear, this, this, this passage right here, this phrase, through whom he created the world, is just a nail in the coffin of the idea that Jesus is just another man of God. This is a nuclear bomb, right? The entire world was made through Jesus. And now, as we're talking about this, we hear a little knock on our front door. And we open that front door, and we have another group of people. Their names are the Jehovah Witnesses, and they say, yeah, 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 we agree with you. He's way more than a prophet. Yeah, he, he's, everything was made through him. Yeah, Jesus is very, 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 very special, but he's not God. He is a God, like a little G God, a lesser God, a sub-God. In fact, Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus was the archangel Michael, and there's no biblical support for that, but that's a whole other point. But this is where verse 3 of Hebrews 1 comes in. Verse 3, 
He is, this is Jesus, the radiance, means the shining, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's not just some mighty angel that God created the world through. No, no, Jesus, church, he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. The radiance of the glory of God. As we already read, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. It is the invisible God made visible to the entire watching world, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If God were to remove his word even for a second, this entire world would dissolve out of existence because it is actively being upheld by Jesus and his powerful word. Going on, let's keep reading. Verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is much is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Muslims say Jesus is a prophet. Hebrews 1 destroys that idea. Jehovah Witnesses say Jesus is just an angel. Hebrews 1 destroys that idea. Because look what it says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? In other words, God never said that to any angels, never. Verse 6, and when he brings the firstborn, that's the father, when he brings the firstborn, that's Jesus, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Again, there goes this whole Jesus is a mighty angel theory. Angels, we see here, are commanded to worship Jesus. Church, in the Bible, who does the worship belong to alone? God right? Worship belongs only to God, and it is idolatry to worship anyone or anything else other than the one true God. And here it says that let the angels worship him. Verse 7, Hebrews 1, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, again, he's creating this compare contrast of the angels, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God. He's referring to him as God. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, that's the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. It's explicit here. It's as explicit as you can possibly get. The Son is referred to as God. He says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Church, Jesus Christ is God. He's not a prophet, not an angel. He's not a little God, little G-God. He is the self-existent one who has come in the flesh. There is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and this is what the Bible clearly, clearly teaches so hold fast to these truths. And now, the last part of my message. I want to end with the beginning of this chapter because it's connected. 
in, the, in chapter 13, Jesus tells them, one of you will betray me. They start talking like, who is it? Is it me, Lord? Is it me? You know, there's, there's distress happening in the room. Keep in mind, the disciples... They didn't know, like they, they didn't read the Gospels. They didn't know how it all ends. The disciples thought, we have a miracle worker here, the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come here, and he is going to help us take over Jerusalem, and he's going to start, he's going to bust down the doors of Jerusalem. He's going to start leading in Jerusalem, and then he's going to go march on Rome, and he's going to take over Rome, and we will be his officers, and we will rule with him this whole world. That, that's what they're expecting. And they're in Jerusalem. So they're like, this is going to happen right now. And as they're about, as they think they're about to do that, Jesus starts saying, one of you is going to betray me. He's like, oh, what is it? And, and he's been talking about his death. And, and so, so they're obviously starting to sense that something's not right. Something's not going to, something's not going to go down the way they were hoping for these last three years that it would go down. Jesus starts talking about the new covenant in my blood. What, what, what blood? What are, you, what are you talking about? Usually that's like someone that dies, right? They lose blood. And so that is the context for when Jesus speaks in John 14, and we'll read it again, the first three verses. This is why Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. He's seen they were troubled. They, they were confused. They were like sheep. You know, they, they had some hopes and dreams, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're about to have this. And he's like, no, you're not going to have this. So they start getting worried. And he says, look, 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 look. Let not your hearts be troubled. It's going to be way worse than you think, but let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. It, if it were not so, I would have told you that I go to would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, what place is Jesus talking about? Where is he going to prepare a place for us? Go ahead, shout it out, church. Heaven, thank you. Now, when I was telling my wife about this sermon, she's like, what does Jesus need to go and prepare for us? Like, he spoke the world into existence, so can't he just snap his finger and, ta-da, it's ready, let's go, guys? What does he have to prepare for us? Obviously, there's no physical work that he needs to do. We understand this is symbolic, but the question is, what is it symbolic of? What is it pointing to? Well, if we actually look at the Jewish oral tradition or the oral law, the Talmud, maybe you've heard that phrase before, there's this section that talks about the betrothal period, meaning how to propose. It's like their manual, like for guys, like this is how you propose, right? And this is how people did it during the times of Jesus. And there's three ways, and I'm going to highlight one of them today for you. And the, one of those ways, it involves the groom, the guy, leaving his father's house. He comes to the house of the bride, and he comes to purchase her, right, with, with a, a dowry, right, to pay a price for her. And the value must be known to the bride. She must know that. And obviously, it always required consent from the girl, whether she's going to marry him or not. And assuming she agrees, when he comes over, pays the price, 
gives her the token. The marriage contract is formed at that time, the covenant. It's established. And from that moment, the bride is set apart for the groom. She's his and his only. She's exclusively only his. You could say she's sanctified, right? Now, what would happen at the end of that whole ceremony, that process, is they would drink together from a cup of wine over which this betrothal benediction has been said. So so they'll say this betrothal benediction, and they'll both drink from this cup. After that, they are now legally husband and wife. They can't come together physically yet because they haven't had their big wedding day. But legally, they are husband and wife. And actually, this explains Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. I don't know if you've ever read, like, you'll be reading this Christmas story over the Christmas season and pay attention. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. So they're not married yet, but they're engaged. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Wait, why divorce? You're just engaged. You don't need a divorce. Well, back in those days, in that culture, you would need a divorce because legally you were already married. All of this can be seen, this whole process, as symbolic of Christ's work on our behalf. We see it. Jesus leaves his Father's house, heaven. He travels here to our home, to his bride, to purchase us for a price. Church, he has paid for us with his own blood, with his own innocent death, on the cross for each and every single one of us experiencing the wrath of God. 1 Corinthians 7.23 And now he has given us a priceless token. He's given us an engagement ring. Church, what is that engagement ring? Or better yet, who is that engagement ring? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That is our engagement ring. That's the token. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is, look at this, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. When a girl is engaged, She looks at her engagement ring, and that is a promise that soon her man will come and he will commit himself fully to her. He will say, I do, and they will come together and be one. Jesus has paid an infinite price with his life, and he has given us that engagement ring, the Holy Spirit, the one that lives in us, the one that leads us, the one that convicts us, that comforts us. That is proof that one day we will experience not just God living in us, but us living with God, the fullness of that. So the parallels, there's so many parallels. And I want us to zoom out for a second. Like, let's remember John 14, right? This comfort that Jesus is giving the disciples and he's giving us is this this betrothal, this wedding. It is orchestrated and carried out by the Holy Trinity. 
The Father sends the Son. Jesus leaves his Father's house. He finds us. He pays the price with his life, leaves the Spirit as a guarantee. And Jesus then goes to prepare a place in the Father's house. And the second, cha- the second half of chapter 14, if you read it, it's all about Jesus sending us the Spirit or the Father sending us the Spirit. It's all here. And so, like the Jewish groom, Jesus established a marriage contract with us which he calls the new covenant. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood, that we, we are together now. We are committed to one another. And, and we, as the bride, we are now sanctified. The word sanctified literally means set apart. It's like you devote, like, okay, so, uh, you know, I've got, you know, lots of mugs, but my favorite mug, this is my mug, and no one else can use it. This is, I'm only going to use this mug for myself. That's sanctified, that's set apart. We have now been set apart for Jesus. So that means that no guy can now come around and start a relationship with us. No, we are committed and devoted to one and one only. And the communion wine, it's symbolic of the covenant with which Jesus obtains his bride. And the Jewish couple would drink from that wine together and their, the official beginning of their engagement would begin. And this is why when we partake of communion, as we will next Sunday, we are remembering our groom. We're remembering Jesus. We're proclaiming his death, which wasn't just a random death. It was on my behalf. It was the price that he paid for me. That's what we're remembering, what our bride, groom has done for us And after this engagement has been locked in, bride has been set apart, the groom would leave back to his father's house, back in the Jewish times. And and the time between engagement and actual wedding would be about a, a year. About a year, it'd be different. Now, what the groom would do is he would go back to his father's house and he would prepare a house in order to take his soon-to-be wife there, and that's where they would start their family. And they would live there together in their own separate little house near his father's house. That's how they did it. And the reason, and and back in those days, nobody knew when he would come back, mostly because no one knew how quickly he'd be done building, right? Even he didn't know how quickly he'd be done building. But as soon as he was done, as soon as it was ready, he would come back for his bride. That's why Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, when time came, when the house was ready, when the groom was ready to come back for his bride, he would be accompanied, he'd go together by his friends, his male escorts. Again, the exact time of his arrival wasn't known. Oftentimes, it would happen at night, and they'd all be walking together in a line with torches, right? Just like the second coming of Christ. And obviously, as they would go into the town, the bride would need a little bit of time to, uh, you know, put her makeup on to be ready. But obviously, as the bride, not knowing when your man's going to come back, you better be ready, like, since day one of the engagement, right? You better be ready from the very beginning, and you better be living in a state of constant preparation. And so, but what they would do is, as they would be entering the town, there'd be a shout, like a loud shout, like the the groom is here. The wedding is beginning. 
just to give her those couple of minutes to get ready. And guess what? When Christ comes back, there will be a shout. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, talking about the second coming of Christ, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Church, we have been separated from our groom for nearly 2,000 years. We don't know when he will return, but we must live and be ready and remain faithful. And Jesus will come one day with his angelic escort, preceded by a shout, and he will come and take us to be with him, and we will be with him forever. Amen? Isn't it beautiful? Church, the gospel is literally, literally a love story. It is the love story of all love stories orchestrated by the Holy Trinity. As I call the band up, Jesus tells us and promises us, if we can go to the next slide, he promises us that there will be plenty of space for every single one of us. There are many rooms in the Father's house. John 14, I will come again and I will take you to, to myself that where I am, you may be also. And Jesus wants us to be there with him. You want to know why? We read just three chapters down. John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. As he's about to get killed, he's praying to the Father. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, the bride, may be with me where I am. It's in heaven. Why? Why does he want us to be there with him? To see my glory that you have given me. Jesus wants us to see his glory. Last week, we talked about seeing Jesus through suffering. Jesus wants all of us to see the fullness of his glory, the glory that the Father gave him before the foundation of the world because the Father loved him. You know why Jesus wants us to see his glory? Because he knows there is nothing better for a human soul than to experience the fullness of the glory of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. And for everyone who trusts in him, that will be your reality. You will behold the infinite, awesome glory of God. And Jesus, because he knows that's the best thing for us, he longs. Jesus in his soul desires for us, me and you, to see his glory forever and ever. Because he knows that's the best thing. Jesus went to prepare for us something so amazing. And it is worth everything that we have here on earth, church. We are his bride. We are set apart for him. We're devoted for him. We can't be fooling around. 
with this world. No, we belong to him, and he has paid an incalculable price for us. He loves us, and he has given his spirit as a guarantee, as a promise, as a token, and we ought to always live ready, waiting and longing for his return. You know why? Because he himself longs to return to us, to take us and finally say, finally, my love, my bride, I am with you forever and ever, never to be separated ever again. That is the desire of Jesus towards everyone who trusts in him. If you haven't trusted in him yet, I, I urge you, I'm pleading with you, repent. Cry out to him, trust in him and say, Lord, I want to be with you too. Save me, help me. I can't change on my own. I can't be good enough on my own. And he will be yours and you will be his and you will turn from the filth of this world and you will be a part of his people, a people that Jesus will come back for one day. Amen. Let's stand and let's pray we're going to have a minute of response time. But as we respond to the Lord, think about the love story that the Holy Trinity has orchestrated for us. We are his bride, his love, his people. Jesus, the lover of our souls, we cry out to you. We worship you for you are God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for paying the infinite price for all of us. Thank you for leaving us the spirit so that we would not have to be alone. Lord, I pray that we would live as the bride who is eagerly waiting she doesn't care about the things of this world. She cares about one thing and one thing only, meeting her groom again. She, all, she can't, all she can think about is that big day that she's going to have with her soon-to-be husband. Lord, make us people that wait and long for that and live for that, and we're always ready. Whether you come in the morning, in the day, or at night, Lord Jesus, may we be prepared. And for anyone who hasn't come to know you yet, may they know you. May they turn to you and be saved. Lord, we thank you. We worship you. And we pray this all in the name of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.